0: This is Pastor Zachary Bartles of Judson Baptist Church, and you're about to hear a sermon on Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3, called From the Presence of the Lord. We were apparently having some issues with our sound system this past Sunday morning, making for some slightly annoying audio bugs in the file. However, if you can tolerate it, I pray this message will feed, challenge, and inspire you to be a recipient and a channel of God's grace to others. Ever began reading a book or watching a movie or a television program and thought, oh, this is slow. Get to it. Come on. The, the credits go on forever and ever. And then there's just talking, and you're like, when is something gonna blow up? Anybody else ever had that happen? That come, sometimes can happen even when you're reading the scriptures. You know, you're like, okay, I'm reading the story of Jesus. I know it starts. With an angel from heaven coming and declaring that this virgin is pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and then the baby's born. There's a choir of angels in the sky. All sorts of exciting stuff happening, intrigue. But first, Matthew says, "I need to tell you about Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather," and then kind of take you all the way down through the generations. And we're tempted to skip ahead. And as we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, you don't want to skip. Everything is in the Bible for a reason, but sometimes you open up to a book of the Bible and it gets right to the action. And that is the case here with the book of Jonah. It starts, and within three verses here, we've already got major action. We've got, we got people traveling, we've got all sorts of stuff, and then in the next verse we've even got, oh, remember in the 90s when every movie was a natural disaster movie? It turns into one of those. And so we see here in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. It begins with the word of the Lord. Now the whole Bible begins with the word of the Lord. You'll remember it's the Lord who spoke into existence light and earth and the sea and everything that there is. With words speaking nothing into something. And it's the same word of the Lord that we see at the beginning of John when we read The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But here when we begin with the Word, we find out quickly that as powerful as it is, Jonah, whose whole vocation and calling in life is to receive the Word and pass it on, ignores it, even rebuffs it intentionally. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah. And of course, Everyone knows how this story goes, even people who have no background in church, no religious training. They know Jonah. He got swallowed by a great fish, or sometimes it's said he was swallowed by a whale. And this is one of the most mocked books in the whole Bible because of it. Many people who, who think that Christianity is just a silly set of fairy tales and people holding on to you know, the ramblings of old Bedouin shepherds, they will say, I mean, come on, you really believe this guy was swallowed by a whale? Are you kidding me? And this is nothing new. This isn't just like uh, in, in the modern world. As far back as the 3rd and 4th century, there are actually records of people kind of scoffing at this book. Many would point out that there is a sort of similar, all this similarity is played up, uh, a story where Hercules and a sea monster have this kind of uh, interaction, and it's it's Joppa where it happens, and it involves the Mediterranean Sea, and and some would say, you see, you're, you're even just copying old Greek myths, never thinking that perhaps the Greek myths have copied and corrupted the biblical text. But everything about this story indicates to us that we're supposed to believe it happened it's often said you know this is this is a commentary on Israelite life this is this is just a parable this is just a legend and it was written down to make a point except everything about it matches the rest of the prophetic writings in Scripture right down to beginning with the word of the Lord came to insert prophet name and if we're going to believe that Elijah who was hiding at the Kidron Brook, that God used birds to feed him, well, why wouldn't we believe that the same God would use a great fish to offer sovereign transportation by His grace to another prophet and bring him back in the direction he was supposed to go after he had fled from the presence of the Lord? Those who have suggested this is a parable don't recognize the markings of a parable because there really is never in Jesus' parables or anywhere else in Scripture or outside of Scripture this much historical and geographical detail in a parable. A parable is a little story that's made to give a point, make one point, a spiritual point, usually. But in this case, we've got place names, we've got people names, we've got the reign of a particular king. Everything about it tells us this is meant to be understood as history. And for many, this is hard to swallow. Dad joke. But... But for us, because we put our faith in Jesus, we say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. One of the details we get is that Jonah is from Gath Hafer. You go, where is that? It's not here. It's in 2 Kings, the only other place Jonah is mentioned. So he's from uh, part, part of the allotment for the tribe of Zebulun, which is located up in what will later be called Galilee, where Jesus comes from. Up there, if you are a prophet, you've got to deal with the wickedest kings there are. If you're down in Judah, you're, it's hit or miss. You've got a good one, you've got a wicked one. You got, up north, there is hardly anyone that's anything but wicked. This guy's got a hard job. His name is his, Jonah. That's basically all we know about him. Jonah, he's the son of Amittai. Jonah means dove, which is a nice little name. What does it mean? Names always mean something in Scripture. Why dove? Well, in the Song of Songs, We have this back-and-forth dialogue between Solomon and his lover, and he calls her my dove. It's a term of endearment. My love, my dove, my undefiled. And and here he's called the son of Amitai. Amittai means son of my faithfulness here. My faithfulness. So he's the dove, the son of God's faithfulness. And there's overwhelming tradition from very far back that Jonah himself is the author. We don't know that for a fact, but many of the details would seem to indicate that he was, or at least that he spoke to whoever wrote this down. And this is a book that's often thought of as being very simple and even simplistic. And it is simple on one level. Children can understand it. Children can read it and get the point of it. Much of the scriptures are this way, where it's simple on the surface, but contains a complex structure, which Jonah has. Literary future parallelism, double entendre, And and poetic elements even it's it's a very complex book once you dig in and start to understand it but History or allegory and as we were talking about this morning in Sunday school You want to know what kind of book you're dealing with and either way this one is what we'd call a satire This is a funny tragic story. It's funny, but not ha ha funny kind of ha ha sad if you will it contains some very broad comedy You aware? Uh, Well, I don't know, a guy getting swallowed by a fish and then puked up? That's funny. Are you allowed to laugh at that? Well, yeah, of course you are. And everything in it is kind of big, right from the beginning. This job he's given is big. Go to Nineveh, which will soon be the capital of Assyria. It already is kind of functioning that way. Assyria is an empire. Go to this great city. And you are going to have this job of telling him in three days this whole place is going down in flames if you don't repent. His response is big. He goes in the other direction with designs to go hundreds of miles over sea. The fish that swallows him. Big. In fact, the word great, gadol in Hebrew, it comes up again and again as you read this text. The great sea. That's what they called the Mediterranean. The great sea. Go to Nineveh. That great city. Ir gadol. Again and again, this notion of big, and the, the, at the end of the day, the real story here, the real theme of this book is that our God is bigger than any of it. It's one of the greatest books about teaching God's sovereignty that we find in the canon of Scripture. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Why? The NIV doesn't translate the first word of those instructions, which is kum means arise. Get up. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. Get off your backside and go. That's part of the command. Well, as Paul asked, how can they hear unless someone is sent? So God is sending someone. Arise and go. It's a call to action, and it reminds us a bit of the Great Commission that we ourselves have received. Go and make disciples of all nations. Their sin has come before me. If you want to see a catalog of the sins of Nineveh, just read the book of Nahum, which is a couple down the road here. And These guys gave Sodom and Gomorrah a run for their money. It was a very sinful city. Nineveh, by the way, means home of Nimrod. You remember Nimrod, Noah's Noah's grandson, he he helped build the Tower of Babel and he founded some cities, one of them being Nineveh. And from the beginning, it was known as a center of all sorts of sin and debauchery. It was located on the east bank of the Tigris in Mesopotamia, right there where you would find uh, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. So at the time, to put things in perspective, Assyria was kind of an up-and-coming world power. And they were kind of always looming as a threat and eventually they would basically erase the northern kingdom of Israel from the face of the earth never to be seen again. And, and we remember what Jonah had to do with, with uh, Assyria because back in Second Corinthians 14.25 we read that Jeroboam restored the borders of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-hafer. So this had happened. Jeroboam II, the king of northern Israel, reconquered, and he now controls many of these cities that had been slowly chipped away and taken by the enemy. Basically had re-expanded the borders of northern Israel back to where they were under David and Solomon. And at the moment, although, yes, Assyria kind of looms as this vague threat, they're so busy fighting the Aramians and putting down all sorts of rebellions within their own borders, they're not much to worry about at the moment. So Jonah would just pack his bag, throw on his sandals, arise, and go to Nineveh to proclaim against them. And then we have the twist in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah does obey the first part of the command. Arise, right? Jonah arose, and then he ran away. Tarshish, where is that? Well, probably present-day Spain. We think we know what they had in mind when they say Tarshish. Southern tip of the Iberian Peninsula, just west of uh, the Rock of Gibraltar. And you've got to think about, in terms of living in the Mediterranean world, where the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, is, is kind of all-important, where he's shooting for is all the way across. They're on the east side, and he's looking at He's like, I want to go to the, literally the end of the world. So he goes down to the port, which is Joppa. And I'll tell you, is it surprising? I'll tell you, I was just there. And uh, it's called Jaffa now, and you look out at the Mediterranean Sea, and I thought, you know, I can see how this would be inviting. It's, it's, it's beautiful and vast, and you could just sail away from your problems. Of course, they follow him, as they always do, but Jonah is apparently not thinking clearly. He's thinking, all right, it's time for me to retire. I, I, I can't handle this job anymore. And to go to Tarshish is basically like going to Bermuda. They were known for wealth and leisure, but they were no military threat to Israel at all. So this this guy Jonah, who won't go to the Gentiles to call them to repent, will gladly go to the Gentiles to kick back and enjoy life and hide from God. Furthermore, Tarshish was famous for their shipbuilding technology. If you read through the, the Old Testament, basically whenever Tarshish comes up, it's a reference to the ships of Tarshish. Meaning that potentially getting to that city could mean going even further, further out until he is way beyond the borders of what anyone in Israel would even think of. As we look at this passage, I'm reminded of how in Sunday school we have been studying observation. You, you open God's Word and before you ask, what does this mean? Or what does this mean to me? You've got to say, what does it say? What, what is there? And one thing that's very important to notice while you're reading your Bible, before you begin to interpret it or apply it, is look for repeated words, repeated phrases. And we find that in spades here in Jonah 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. We read that he went to Tarshish three times. The author of this book wants to bang it into your skull. He did not do what God commanded. He didn't go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish, to Tarshish, to Tarshish. He's supposed to go this way, and he goes this way several hundred miles with designs to go even further and further until he disappears to the edge of the known world. Secondly, twice repeated, is the notion of going away from the presence of the Lord. Again, he's 500 miles away from where he's supposed to go. It's telling that he doesn't just stay home. I'm not going there. No, he feels compelled to move in the opposite direction as far and as quickly as he can from the presence of the Lord. And ironically, this guy who says, I won't go and preach to those pagans is thinking like a pagan because pagan thought says God is based on where you are. There's this God here. There's that God over there. And so even later on when Syria conquers the northern uh, regions of Israel, the northern kingdom, They bring back priests and spiritual leaders and say, oh, we forgot, teach the people who live there now how to worship the God of this land. That way the land won't be cursed and we can go on making money on the backs of the Israelites in the north there. So he's thinking like, I am in Israel and God, Yahweh is Israel's God. He rules here. I got to go somewhere else away from the presence of the Lord. I've heard some say, no, 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 what he means is away from the temple, away from where God's presence was over the Ark of the Covenant. He's already away from that. He's in northern Israel. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Judah. And so he thinks he can get away from God. This reminds me a bit like Adam and Eve, right? We've sinned. Now what? I know if we go in those bushes, he can't find us. But Jonah's a prophet. He should know this stuff. He should know, Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, this sounds like it was written for Jonah. He's going to the depths, he's trying to go to the far side of the sea. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God sees everything, and God is present everywhere. And yes, he knows this. But again, he's just reacting without thinking. Not only is he thinking like Adam and Eve, he's thinking like Cain. We read in Genesis 4, Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. i got to get away from this guy. He knows what I've done, and, and now I've been marked. Thirdly, twice we see, in verse 3, that he went down. Now that is significant. Now granted, if you're riding a bus toward Jaffa... You're going down. You can feel that the whole way, right? Because you're going to the coast. That's normal. You're going down, but this also has some symbolic meaning. That's why it's repeated to bring it to our attention. After he arises, he goes down. He rises up, and then he immediately goes down. And, you know, this is a euphemism in Scripture for death, to go down, to go down to the pit, to go down to Sheol, to go down to the grave. Every step away from God is a step away from the giver of life. He's going down, and Jonah is going down, down into the water. In the the Scriptures, to go down into the depths of the water is a picture of being swallowed up in death. In baptism, going down into the depth of the water is a picture of your old self being swallowed up in death and coming out of the water, a picture of new life. And that same symbolism is present in the book of Jonah. But he's running, man. He's going, he's going toward Jaffa. He's going to go to the end of the world. And he thinks he's going to get away from God. He's a lot like that dove. His name means dove. And he's a lot like that dove in the book of Genesis after the flood when Noah's like, hey, go find land. And the thing looks and looks and looks and looks and cannot find land. This is Jonah. He's looking for somewhere other than the safety of where God has provided grace and peace and a calling for him and he will not find it it's not uncommon for someone like Jonah to have this kind of reaction for someone with great privilege to whine that he's not getting what he has coming you know this this is all a guy who's so familiar with God's word the book starts with God's word he ignores it but the book then ends with God's word God gets the last word and without God's Word, this whole thing is just bizarre, right? Think about this story. This guy goes on vacation. He gets swallowed. He gets, he gets vomited up. Later on, a weed grows. He yells at a worm. I mean, it doesn't make any sense unless God is involved. And even though he has had all these privileges and heard from God and knows he's intimately familiar with the Word of God, he winds up angry and bitter. We see his privilege throughout even these verses. He paid the fare to get on the boat. Money was kind of a newish thing in this world. Most commerce was done without it. And yet, this is a guy who's able to, without much preparation, just go, uh, grab my purse, go down there and pay the fare and buy a ticket to a distant destination. As a privilege. God has blessed him in that way. He has the privilege of being God's chosen servant who hears the word of the Lord in a way that very few ever have. He had the privilege of knowing exactly what he should do with his life. Have you ever wondered, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Is, am I on the right path? Is this what I was meant to be? Jonah never had to. God called him and commissioned him. He knew this is what my life should look like. And then each and every day, God would tell him, go there and say this to these people. He never had to doubt that he was fulfilling the purpose for which he was created. That's a privilege. He had the privilege of being heard and believed and obeyed, even as he prophesied to a wicked king like Jeroboam II. He'd been, I mean, usually you got prophets going out, and everyone hates them, they stone them, they kill them. Jesus references this. Not Jonah, he's had an illustrious career, it seems, and that's a privilege. And throughout 2 Kings, which is the background here to the book of Jonah, there's this reference to the sons of the prophets. Seems like there was a program in place where people like Elisha would sit under and learn from people like Elijah. And there was a prophet training kind of school of the prophets that was there. It makes perfect sense, although it doesn't say specifically, it makes perfect sense that Jonah was part of this school of the prophets that he'd been raised up as they raised up the next generation. He'd have the the privilege of sitting in God's presence from his youth. And perhaps that's where the problem comes in. Perhaps it had become commonplace to Jonah. When we went and visited uh, the beautiful Greek Orthodox Church on Grand River a couple years ago as part of our, our denominations class. I remember we walked in and I went, Oh, smell that incense. It smells so beautiful. And the priest said, Oh, I can't smell it. I can only smell it when I'm right there. I'm here all day long. You know, you can smell how your other your friend's house has a smell, but your house doesn't when you're a kid. You're like, What kind of fabric softener do you use? Well, perhaps he'd been in the presence of God and and he had smelled the sweetness of God's Word so much and so often that it was just background noise, that it was just zero for him. I fear sometimes that officiating the Lord's Supper, baptizing people, proclaiming the Gospel could become commonplace for me, for a minister that must never ever happen for all of us following the lord jesus reading his word speaking to him in prayer these things can't become eh, whatever we must always be honored and blown away by the fact that we're recipients of his grace we can hear his word and he chooses to hear ours these privileges should humble us but if we like jonah follow our own old nature follow our hearts they'll instead puff us up And instead of being mindful and more and more and more mindful of God's grace, we just kind of begin to see God's grace as something we deserve. Every little gift ought to make us think, Wow, God, you are so full of mercy and love. But if we're thinking like Jonah, then every little gift is just, "Eh, Of course, but I got that yesterday. What do you got new for me today? Many don't even realize that Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings because it's such a little throwaway thing we don't even have the exact text of the word that he receives, the oracle from God. But it's important that there's nothing negative about him there. That, that Jonah was just another one of the prophets before he hit the wall here with this call to go to Nineveh. He fulfilled the role of the prophet, he did it faithfully, he did it fruitfully. But past obedience is never a substitute for trusting God and obeying him now. In this present moment. This present moment is the moment you have right now. And it matters how you respond to the Holy Spirit. To God's word. To the leading that we have. We'll find that as he becomes more and more entitled in his thinking. Looking back at his privileges going oh that's what I deserve. He is actually unmoved by the fact that he abandons God and flees in the other direction. But as soon as he has a sense that God might have abandoned him, he cries foul. He is not happy. He's become completely self-centered. Jonah had been in God's presence and received his word. And now he says, I've had it. Now, this reminds me quite a bit of the words of St. Paul who says, let anyone who thinks he stand take heed unless he fall. If we start to think, yeah, I got that. I got the Jesus stuff. I got that. I've read the Bible. I get it. I'm, I'm, that's all behind me. Now I can pursue other things with a, a singularity of focus that should belong to God. Take heed lest you fall. Now, It is probably only fair to mention, this is the only time in the Old Testament that a prophet is given the job to go to the pagan, to the heathen, and bring a message from the God of Israel. And so like every church that's on its way out, he has the objection, we've never done it this way before, perhaps we shouldn't do it this way now. But reacting against God's instructions is never wise. And reacting against God's instructions because he's just asking too much is even more foolish. The God who did not think it was too much, for God the Son, the Word made flesh to come and dwell amongst us, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to have his beard pulled from his face, to be nailed to a cross and bleed and suffer and die for you and for me, is there anything that he can ask that is too much? Now, we might read these verses and assume that Jonah is scared, scared to go to Nineveh. It's a rough place. And perhaps we're supposed to at first think that as we read chapter 1. But spoiler alert, in chapter 4, we find out the real reason why he did not want to go. He doesn't want to give these guys even a little chance. Why warn them at all? He didn't want them to to have the opportunity to turn from their sins and live. Even though God himself said, I do not desire the death of a sinner, but that they repent and live, he, he, he doesn't want to go there. He doesn't even want to cry against them. A less experienced prophet might say, ooh, preach against them. I hate those guys. That sounds fun. But Jonah has had experience. He's seen what God does with an unfaithful people like Israel. And what he does is he extends grace. And he gives them new life, another chance. Jeroboam II, the guy that that actually received the word from from Jonah in 2 Kings and went out and conquered all these cities and had all this glory, he was a horrible king. Jeroboam I was actually kind of the yardstick for bad kings. And and as you read about the kingdom the the way that they're judged is whether or not they departed from the sins of jeroboam well jeroboam too did not depart from the sins of jeroboam and jonah had seen and even prophesied beforehand how god blesses his people despite their sins and wandering hearts and he's okay with that as long as it's in-house but if you want me to go to them see god loves us but not them as humans we have this tendency to always separate into those two groups Us and them. And who does God favor? What a coincidence. It's always us. They don't understand. They have dark hearts. They don't deserve to hear from God. And that is what's going on here in Jonah's heart. The idea that God loves us more than them, or maybe that God loves us and not them. Even if it's not a parable, there are aspects of this that clearly are intended to shine a light on Israel as a whole. To say, look, just like Jonah's running away from this task, God's people in general have run away from this task. The the last verse kind of shows us that all all of Israel is is sort of a bunch of Jonah's at that moment. That grace has given birth to entitlement, and the same thing happens today in the church as well. When we look at Joshua 24, this recap of the conquest, Joshua starts it out by saying, we come from this guy named Abraham. And you might think that Joshua is about to start bragging about how they are sons of the illustrious Abraham. people brag about being sons of Abraham. At camp we were singing that song, Father Abraham had many sons. We're spiritually children of Abraham. Muslims say we're children of Abraham. But when Joshua brings it up, he says, we all came from Abraham an idol worshiper from Mesopotamia. Don't forget where you came from is the warning that Joshua gives, and it's the warning that Jonah himself is going to need and is going to receive. Israel had been given this job. All the way back in Genesis 12, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And they held on tight to that. Sounds good. We're your favorite. But he went on to say, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The church, too, has God's favor. Grace and favor are synonyms. And yet, rather than hanging on tight to it and saying, isn't it good that God favors us? And concluding that we must then be His favorite? He says, all the peoples of the world are to be blessed through you. Go and make disciples. Don't hang on and and hoard that grace. Share it. Because there is enough to go around, sound the church bells, let them ring. Everyone can be redeemed. All of us. Israel's mission as a light to the Gentiles, it was one that they didn't really carry out. They dropped the ball. It was, it was an experiment, and God wasn't waiting to see if it worked. God was showing them what was needed. Hey, stay here, centered in Jerusalem, where my presence is, and just shine, and shine out, and let people be drawn in. And they shined as best they could sometimes, and sometimes they said, ah, we don't feel like shining. But at the end of the day, when Jesus came, he said, let's flip this around backwards. Instead of you staying here and shining, instead of you all staying here in this sanctuary, and we'll just sing so loud, people will come in the back door, go out from Jerusalem Instead of drawing in, you go blasting out, and everywhere you go, you proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to everybody. God loves us, and God loves them. In many ways, the book of Jonah is a prophetic biography. We learn from his successes and mountaintops, we learn from his valleys. We see uh, what we ought to do based on what he does and what he fails to do and how these things turn out. We see ourselves in his weaknesses in his hard-heartedness, and we see that we should be striving for in God's love, pers- loving pursuit of men and women who are separated from him, we recognize the need for mission in the church. We see the frustration that Jonah had of, of being called to do something great and finding we are inadequate to the call. And if you have ever looked at God's command to go and make disciples of all nations and just said that's too big and wanted to throw up your hands and throw in the towel, this book is for you. If you've ever found your capacity for grace and mercy and love sort of dropping, like you're, like you're playing a video game and you know the little life thing goes down, 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 and you look at that and go, oh my goodness. My, my, my mercy is going down. I find myself more and more hard-hearted to those around me. This book is for you. And if you have ever wanted to just say, you know what? I love God. It's, it's nice, but I'm thinking kind of like, like a, a pagan in that I don't feel like going into his presence in the church. I feel like going in the opposite direction and going off and just having a little me time. This book is for you. It gets right into the action, and it's not very long. But I would encourage you to read the book of Jonah this week, a couple times through. And as we take the next seven nine weeks, we are going to see that God has an awful lot to say to 21st century America through the lens of 8th century B.C., Nineveh, and northern Israel. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that this, this story has been for many an embarrassment for others, it has been something to mock and laugh at. For others, they've, they've written it off as, as just sort of a legend that doesn't quite matter. And Lord, we pray that whatever the case, we know that Your Word never returns void. We know that You have written this down for us, and Your Holy Spirit has inspired and kept from all error whoever wrote the book of Jonah so that we could read it today and it would speak to us, to our lives. And we pray, Lord, that we would remember that you love us and you want us to share that love with the world. And when you call us to do that, we often want to run away and go in the other direction. Lord, we pray that we would instead stop and and pray for more grace and ask for more mercy and pray that we would have in us the same heart and mind that was in Christ Jesus that saw those who were lost, that saw those who were hard-hearted, even those who were full of sin, and instead of being filled with hatred or bitterness, was moved with compassion. Lord, we pray that we too would be moved with compassion. We pray all this in His holy name. Amen.